Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here with Keith Townsend. Welcome to another sponsored episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage assistant vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Alex Kyrkorp, CEO of OnDat. So Alex, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what's going on at OnDat? Hi, Ray. Hi, Keith. Uh, it's great to be on the podcast. Um, so my name is Alex Kirkop. Um, I'm one of the founders and the CEO of, uh, of OnDat, um, which you might previously have known uh, as Storage OS. Um, and at OnDat, we're building uh, a cloud-native uh, storage solution for stateful applications in Kubernetes. Really excited to be here. Yeah, great, great. So we've been talking to a lot of um, Kubernetes solutions these last couple of uh, months and stuff like that. What makes on that different than some of the other solutions we've talked with? Right. So, so on that is is different in terms of um, three main functions. Um, the first is we're completely platform agnostic, so we're we're a software only solution. Um, actually deployed as containers um, across any platform, um, you know, whether that's on-prem or in VMs or uh, in cloud instances, um, and supporting all of the different uh, Kubernetes distributions, you know, whether that's some of the more traditional ones like um, OpenShift or Rancher, for example, or or some of the um, some of the more um, uh, some of the newer ones like uh, uh, EKS and AKS and and, and Antos, for example, um, which we're seeing uh, which we're seeing a lot more pickup in. Um, the second point is where we we design the whole product around the developer and around enabling the developer to run um, their applications in the easiest way possible. So providing them with a frictionless experience to effectively run stateful applications just like they run. Um, stateless um, applications. Um, and then finally, we do all of that um, with the performance scale and reliability um, that you'd kind of expect for, for, for mission critical systems, you know, and, and providing the ability to, to scale over really large um, environments or and, and provide deterministic performance for those workloads, you know, like databases and message queues and, and those key functions that that provide the state the stateful capability to to those applications yeah so I was looking at your website and there's like a, a page and a half of different applications that you're connected to and stuff like that I thought it was kind of interesting that you cover a lot of ground with that um so you mentioned uh, reliability availability performance those sorts of things what you know I saw something on your website about your performance. Can you explain how you're able to achieve high performance like that? Sure. So there's there's a few things that um, there's a few things that that contributes to that. Um, the but but at a fundamental level, we're kind of engineered from the ground up to be um, extremely low latency. Um, and as you're aware. You know, latency directly translates to you know things like transactions per second. So the way we do this is, um, you know, through very low level uh, optimization throughout you know the entire I/O queue chain, 
the the, the threading model, the the network connectivity, etc., um, to 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 make this happen at at a very efficient level. Um, we've also um, done a lot of work to uh, use accelerations for encryption and hashing and, and a variety of other things to <clears throat> to be ex exceptionally you know CPU optimized. Um, we we do a lot of work as well in terms of um, laying out data in the most optimal way to to deal with you know um, both throughput scenarios where you know applications like Kafka for example might be focused very much on the the number of megabytes per second you can push through but also in terms of small block um, random workloads exactly um and and we you know we and and we and we also employ a number of optimizations as well um to to make this happen you know in a fairly deterministic manner um across a kubernetes environment which by its very nature has a lot of moving objects right so so you know nodes come and go and um and clusters scale on demand um and we and we employ a lot of automation to make sure that the the workloads are kept as local to the applications as possible, and we 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 effectively you know provide that that um, that confidence that 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 you know if 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 a if a job took five minutes yesterday, it'll take five minutes today. Mm, that's very unusual. <laughs> These days, <laughs> <Indeed>. right? <laughs> right. Uh, Alex, help me out with uh, some of the logical pieces here the your your team decided to build a platform that's kind of agnostic of the underlay but you know that's kind of an anti-pattern in storage you know storage systems you, you you want to kind of touch feel and understand the consistency of the underlay how do you ensure uh whether it's uh, a, a vm based etc that the to your point earlier that that transaction that took five minutes yesterday is going to take five minutes today, regardless of, you know, kind of what's happening underneath. Especially a problem in the cloud, quite frankly, <laughs> right? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 it, it, it is. And, you know, we, there, there's, there's no, you know, there's no special magic for, for non-deterministic performance in the cloud for sure um, but I think you know the the key thing is to be able to make use of or best use of whatever the underlying technologies are whether you know that's solid state or NVMEs or or, or things like that which which um, we're seeing a lot more of even in cloud environments you know which 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 provides you know potentially hundreds of thousands of IOPS per device um, even even in those cloud instances and then secondly the, the the other part which is which is typically the other constraint is is the networking um and we you know to do that we we make sure that for example if there are any failures or if there are scaling um we have a function called delta sync that that you know intelligently manages which data needs to be moved between nodes um and we also um do things like compressing data for example across across the nodes because we often find that despite having very fast cpus and very fast disk often the the, the network between nodes is is the biggest bottleneck in, in in these environments so is is something like 
compression an option that can be turned on and off, or is it something that you do all the time for the data? Um, for network traffic, it's it's something that we just do all the time. We've just oh, found that. Okay. Yeah. So we've, is we've... it is it placed on the storage media in a compressed format, or? It is right. So 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 it's it's on that every um, every every function, whether it's replication or encryption or compression is just a factor of having a label on the volume in kubernetes right so so you can exactly right so so it's done either you know it's granular per volume but but obviously most people um, will deploy this as part of a storage class and 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 effectively have a group of volumes with with a particular class um and the, and the idea is that you know you can will will encrypt data in transit and um, uh, and at rest will will compress in transit and will also compress at rest based on those labels um, and and those are all things which are which are um, selectable you know on a per volume or per class of of, of application mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so you keep everybody's you know the reason for all this is because the stateful applications are coming online in the kubernetes space are you what what what's driving the statefulness? Of containers, you know, obviously they originally came out. They're all this stateless, ephemeral kinds of things that come and go as as they need and scale up and down as as needs happen. But this statefulness is a different world, right? Well, so containers are effectively a, a different way of packaging an application, um, and it the container includes all the dependencies for an application. So the application becomes self-contained and it means that the application is portable. Um, and then with orchestrators like Kubernetes, the developers get this superpower where, where effectively they can compose what their application requires in terms of you know, compute and memory, but also network connectivity and also storage connectivity. Um, and so what we're seeing is this, this sort of the shift left, right, where um, app, where developers are becoming um, responsible for defining um, all the different parts of, of the, the infrastructure. And it, starts, it started with things like testing and has moved on to security, networking, and, and, and storage too. Um, and therefore, what we're, what we're really seeing is it's, it's, it's less about whether containers are stateless or stateful. It's about all applications need to store state somewhere. And if you're using an orchestrator to automate this functionality, then why wouldn't you also want to automate mm. your stateful parts of the of the application? Because at, at some level, they all need state. I, I always thought this, but nobody agreed with me. <laughs> no, I, I, absolutely. You know, and 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 the thing is, you know, when we talk about when we talk about cloud, I, I have this sort of theory that that cloud. It's not about really the place, right? Cloud is is about the on-off consumption model and the automation and the self-service. Um, and effectively, that's what the developers are getting with Kubernetes, right? They're getting that capability of specifying what they need, whether it's in their dev environment or their pre-prod or their production environment. Um, and then Kubernetes kind of makes it so for them. And therefore, what they really also need is you know the ability to have 
the same data services available in all those different environments wherever wherever Kubernetes is running, um, and and maintaining you know the the scale and availability and performance and dependability which which you know they kind of just depend on from the infrastructure. So I was at KubeCon a few weeks ago, and we we talked about governance an awful lot. I think Stateful, you know, folks like uh, uh, Kelsey Hightower from Google will still argue that Stateful apps and Kubernetes is not a, uh, an appropriate approach, but we're not here to talk about whether or not it's appropriate, but support what people are doing. The uh, and, I, and I tend to agree with them. Kubernetes is probably not the, the, the platform to build Stateful apps in. It wasn't, uh, that wasn't the the design pattern, but I want to get on this topic of developers and using tools and solutions like on that, the, and you mentioned, you know, security and networking and, uh, Kubernetes in general being kind of all encompassing of, uh, defining application environments. What I'm seeing is a separation, you know, we're, we're generically using the term developer to talk about the team that builds and operates and makes available the Kubernetes platform uh, or the platform built on Kubernetes to provide services. Are you seeing kind of this bifurcation of, 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 of teams where you have developers focused on the platform and then developers focused on building the application and one serves the other? Or are you seeing kind of this Nirvana of, of the mystical developer doing doing it all. Um, it it does vary between organizations and size of organizations, right? So um, there is there is a spectrum from <clears throat> pure application developers to you know DevOps teams to sort of platform managers and 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 everywhere in between. But in general, what we are seeing is this consistent shift left. Um, where it's getting closer to the developer and the the, the processes around, for example, CI/CD um, are automating the changes in the environment between these these different systems. So, so as an example, um, you know, you might have the developer working on an environment on their laptop. They they push changes to to a Git repo, um, and uh, you know, a CI/CD process automatically you know pushes that into say a pre-prod environment but the pre-prod environment is is say in in the cloud or 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 even on prem um, and you have automated policies that that effectively take the same standard definition of what the application needs and applies them correctly to the different environments so so for example you might you might find that the developer working locally in their in their um, laptop might not need to worry about things like replication and then that gets automatically applied and high availability across say you know replication across availability zones gets gets applied automatically as part of a policy when it's when it's being migrated into into those larger environments and 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 these things actually can happen um automatically now right and and, and this is where you get the the governance that that you mentioned right the the developer can specify and the DevOps teams specify what their application needs, but a lot of those policies can be implemented um, 
in a in a centralized model, right? Um, where they can apply, you know, security requirements like encryption, or they can require, they can they can define um, availability requirements like like replication. And you know, and because of this, I think you know, Kubernetes is basically able to to cater for for just about every type of workload, right? Because the 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 incredible thing of giving developers the ability to specify and, and to compose their environment means that effectively they can build anything as a service. So now, you know, if they have um, an operator for a database um, and they need a second database or 10 databases, they can just spin those up on demand as needed um, and then tear them down, by the way. You know, and that's that's another part of, of cloud native technology where um, you know, and systems like on that allow the creation and deletion of these volumes and and and, and the, the the automation for these environments. And I think that's that's what the superpower is. And and it's true. In the beginning, maybe Kubernetes wasn't um, thought of um, for for stateful workloads. But I think that that's gone. That that kind of concept um, really has 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 evolved um, because. You wouldn't want to have two sets of operational processes, two sets of CI/CD, two sets of GitOps, two sets of um, data management uh, systems, just to have just one to be able to manage state, one for the for the app. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right, right, right. Exactly. That's so let's talk about the the this shift left. I'm really curious about it because this is where I'm finding much of the complexity. So on that high complexity, the stateful app stateful is not less complex in Kubernetes than it is, you know, pre-Kubernetes and monolithic application design architectures, et cetera. So on that is hiding that and and automating that complexity. What happens uh, when it breaks and there's a need for to kind of uh, peel back the layers of complexity? Where are you seeing? Uh, teams be successful and teams struggle, especially when it comes to something like on that and, and, and something as complex as enterprise storage. Right, so so, so let's break that down. Um, the, the, the first part of that, you know, equation is how do we, how do we simplify things? Um, and the way we do this is we're, we're deployed as a container on the different nodes. We, we virtualize the the storage that's available on each of those nodes, and it can be you know physical, virtual, or cloud disk. And then we 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 effectively establish a pool of storage um, with a data mesh that makes sure that volumes are available instantly on any nodes within the platform. Um, and then the developer can use dynamic provisioning to um, to effectively create and define. What they need out of the storage so they might say for example look i want a data volume and i'm going to give it a name called it database one and it's going to be 100 gig and it needs to be encrypted and i need three copies of it um, and on that we'll we'll um, just make that happen under the covers we'll we'll automatically create um, that data set and we'll we'll set up the replication and the data mesh um, and it's completely transparent to the developer the developer can then say i want to run my database container, and I wanted to connect to that data volume. And Kubernetes will just run the application and connect the data volume into the namespace. Um, so in that sense, it is it is extremely simple. 
when things go wrong, you know, if there is a node failure or, or, or you know, component failures or, or, you know, even complex scenarios where you have cluster partitioning events and things like that, then on that will automatically make sure that the data continues to be available and, and we, we will automatically, you know, make sure that the desired state matches the actual state. So, so if, if primary volumes or replica volumes get, get lost or deleted, um, we will recreate them and um, re-replicate them. And so, so, so when a cluster is partitioned because of some error in networking, I guess, or something like that, and you've got these volumes that let's say have three replicas, and and you know maybe two of them are sitting on one part of the cluster that's, and the other one is sitting on the other one, other part of the cluster. Um, so you will automatically start the process to make sure that you have three replicas and no no so in in on that um we have this concept of disaggregated consensus where effectively every volume has a mini brain um and is able to make placement decisions and, and failover decisions independently of other volumes within the cluster so Whichever whichever node holds the, the, the primary volume um, effectively holds the, the the lock, if you wish, for for that uh, primary copy of the data that that controls that failover process, and that's and that's a you know that's a strongly consistent process across the cluster using you know um, raft protocols and and things like that to to ensure that strong consistency. So so whichever side of the whichever side of the cluster um, owns the primary or owns the majority of the data um, will automatically um, will automatically perform the recovery process. The, the, the side that's um, effectively isolated um, will, will be um, will actually be physically uh, disconnected um, even um, even protecting against you know, some of these nightmare scenarios where you get split brain uh, uh, clusters and things like that. So, so, so effectively, every transaction and every I/O um, has has a transaction ID, and once the once a, a node has been isolated, any transaction IDs below that certain number are, are automatically discarded. So, so even if the node does reconnect to the network, you know, it, it wouldn't cause any it wouldn't cause any problems, and it would sort of self heal. So I, I guess my question is not necessarily self-healing, but more of returning back to a good known state. So there's, you guys are doing a lot of neat stuff to make sure that data isn't lost, that there's the correct number of replicas, that you're adjusting for the complexity of the underlay. Uh, but what happens when the underlay itself is a root cause of the issue. Let's say uh, this is on physical hardware and there was firmware updates the day before, which the developer either is involved in and not involved in, but they are the pseudo administers of on that. And that is causing a performance issue. The shift left, obviously developers only have purview to what they have purview to. How does on that 
and, and a support model help a developer who's not necessarily a hardware expert or even a cloud infrastructure expert get back to a good known original state? Yeah, that's 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 a good question. So so when when there's underlying um, you know when there's underlying issues which which could be you know performance could be network related, it could be um, you know it could be intermittent issues or whatever. Um, what we're looking to do is to pro is providing the the telemetry um, and and the monitoring to to kind of give the developers and the DevOps teams the ability to 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 diagnose this issue the, those sort of issues. And in fact, one of the things that we're that we're building to continue to help um, in this environment is um, we've we've recently announced our uh, SaaS platform, um, and the idea will be that 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 is going to provides developers you know not only a frictionless way of deploying and licensing and and, and, and activating the software but also providing the the, the visibility um, and the big picture um, uh, view of the cluster so that they can diagnose um, you know performance bottlenecks or or you know lack of capacity or um, you know the sort of issues that that might come up when you know doing uh, an upgrade or, or scaling of, of a cluster, for example. So, so the idea is, you know, today we we plug into the telemetry and 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 the the, the monitoring capabilities and the observability capabilities of Kubernetes itself. Um, and as we develop our SaaS platform, we we give um, end users the ability to to view this in a in a more um, in a more holistic manner uh, and, and be able to see the big picture across not only just one cluster but across all of their clusters because you know the 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 other the other complexity typically is that we're seeing organizations deploy not only large clusters but a larger number of smaller clusters too so it's 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 how clusters interact with each other that that is also um, part of the equation there you talked a little bit about <clears throat> encryption and compression and, and those sorts of things. So tell me a little bit more about the storage facilities that are available. Do you offer um, synchronous replication? Do you offer uh, snapshotting? I mean, what sort of what sort of data protection is built into the system? I, you mentioned that you can turn up replicas from one to three, I guess. Um, and those are those are mirrors within the system. I, I'm I'm thinking. Do you have RAID protection kinds of things, or right? So what we do is we we set up um, we set up replicas between nodes, um, and we uh, we we actually use synchronous replication to to ensure you know data integrity and strong consistency um, across the different nodes. Um, we also um, we also do automated placement. Um, across um, failure domains or, or availability zones to to ensure that, say, replicas are in um, different data centers or different racks or you know different uh, groups of servers, depending on 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 the topology of your environment. Would that be one cluster in a Kubernetes that spans multiple availability zones, or that would be different clusters? No, that 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 can actually be one cluster. Um, we have we have a number of customers today who are deploying across you know three or four availability zones, for example, um, and um, and using on that as as a way of actually replicating data across those those availability zones in a in a transparent way. So, you know, there are application 
um, can sit on a node in any of the availability zones and transparently access <clears throat> access the data. Um, and if a node goes down or indeed a whole availability zone goes down, um, the application can restart um, somewhere else and continue to access the data. Mm, mm, mm. So the data protection is predominantly based on replication or mirroring within the, within the cluster. It, it is. And, and the, the reason for that was, was sort of architectural, but also goes back to the deterministic performance. Um, you know, there are, there are a number of different, you know, pros and cons for, for different mechanisms, whether it's, you know, parity or erasure coding or, 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 or replicas, et cetera. Um, and we specifically chose replicas because that allows us to, to maintain, uh, the lowest latency for, yeah, for, for these environments. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. What about um, snapshots or copy, uh, copy instantaneous copies and that sort of thing? Do you guys support that? Um, so we support uh, different backup mechanisms um, to to allow for the protection of the data. The snapshots uh, themselves are uh, on the roadmap, and those are coming very very soon. Okay. Uh, what about replication across clusters? So again, those are those are roadmap items where where we're looking at different ways of both consuming data across clusters and replicating data across um, clusters and providing you know this 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 multi cluster um, this multi cluster capability. In 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 general, um, we're 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 finding that some of the federation capabilities in in kubernetes are are still sort of being developed and relatively immature um and we're you know we're working with that uh with that sort of timeline well alex i'm i'm really interested to know like what what capabilities are we kind of missing from the just change in a approach like when things shift left and you have a fresh set of developer eyes looking at something like enterprise storage and leveraging this to build applications what what either motions or or patterns or or features are developing that uh, us traditional monolithic applications faithful uh folks looking at it from kind of on-premises world, what's happening in cloud native that we probably should start to take note? So uh, besides think, the automation. <laughs> well, so, the so, other, so, yeah. so, so, so the automation, the automation is key, but I think, I think there's also, you know, two other things that are worth mentioning. I, I, I think the, the base functionality um, in cloud native environments has, has you know, the, the, the entry bar has, has been raised, you know, say 10, 15 years ago, we used to be talking about storage arrays with maybe tens of thousands of IOPS. And, and then, you know, with flash arrays, we, we were talking about maybe hundreds of thousands of IOPS, but, but nowadays with, with nodes having NVMe drives and, and local SSDs, we're, we're, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of IOPS per node. And so what's more important is to have an ubiquitous set of services, whether that's replication or, or access or, or, or encryption, for example, and compression 
um, across all of those all of those different environments. So I think that's the first step. The bar has the bar has gone up, and you know there's there's the environment is therefore inherently a little bit more forgiving. Um, the 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 second aspect to to all of this is is also you know not just the um, not just the automation but the ability to to compose things means that developers are tending to break things up into smaller chunks and DevOps teams too and 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 this you know translates to you know databases and message queues so for example in in older maybe in say even even now I guess you know you we we see database servers which are you know big bare metal boxes perhaps connected to to a san and they'll run a really large database instance and and potentially you know tens or 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 dozens sometimes even hundreds of of little databases within a huge database instance but what we're seeing in 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 the cloud native world is that they're actually breaking up those those databases into into smaller instances so you're moving from for example one big monolithic database to 10 smaller database instances which give you you know greater flexibility um, because you know they're not all combined on a single server requiring lots of cores and lots of memory and therefore a lot more flexibility um, and it also means that as developers add applications or projects, they can fire up smaller instances on demand. So, so what we're seeing is this this translation um, to, you know, some of the concepts of microservices and the breakup of these monolithic applications also apply to databases. They apply to message queues. They apply to, um, you know, streaming systems like Kafka, for example. Um, and they and, and you know when I say databases, it, it's it's everything from you know the, the more traditional SQL databases to to sort of distributed um, databases too. It's it's um, uh, it, it it just applies to all of those things. So so breaking up of those systems in this composable environment makes it more flexible and less error prone too. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because so much of so much of limitations or design limitations is based on the control plane or infrastructure you know you look at why uh public cloud hasn't taken hold in private data centers it's because it's very hard to chop up the control plane small enough to get it into the private data center that to make it to make it make sense financially and from a footprint perspective so as developers are able to you know take a message queue and a database service and all these big heavy services that were centralized and they can begin to decentralize and abstract them in a way that uh, allows them to put smaller bits of pieces of uh, application geographically dispersed you get better performance you get better response and uh and and i hope in the future just better uh, applications that that serve needs that we previously uh, had barriers to because of this centralized control plane issue. No, th that's that's absolutely true, and and you know it's you it's it's part of the journey. If you think of an application um, being put in a container, which is now portable, um, now what we're saying is not, it's not just the application, but it's it's everything that the application needs to to think of um, and to talk to. So it's the components that the application needs to persist data to. It's the it's the it's the FIPS and and the and the service 
points on the network that the application needs to communicate or expose to the external world. And all of that is is configured in, in one way uh, with, with, with Kubernetes. And that means that, you know, the whole application with its dependencies now becomes self-contained. And that gives, you know, developers a, a whole load of ad additional benefits, you know, one, you're you're kind of limiting the failure domain and the blast radius when when things go wrong. You know, you're not taking out, say, ten applications because your big, you know, multi-core bare metal box has gone down. Um, but also, you know, secondly, it, it gives them a lot more flexibility with things, simple things like you know, versions and patching levels and and, and all of those sorts of things. You know, I mean, we've we've all lived through the trauma of of you know one application requiring. A particular version or patch level of a particular database to 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 because of certification or whatever else and 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 then other things which are using the same database server all break you know and 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 now you don't have that anymore because because each application can use it at their own level it depends the other thing I was going to mention was scalability the the ability that that Kubernetes brings to the table to scale up and down applications uh, is almost unfathomable in a normal non-container world, I would say. It's it's just it's just not doable. No, that's 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 absolutely true. Um and it you know it also enables um environments to to use um some of the services which are available in the cloud like you know spot instances to do this, right? So um with with on that we can have this this hybrid model where some nodes in the cluster are are maybe have local NVMe disks and they're providing you know storage for the for the cluster and, and other nodes are are focused on on compute and just consuming that storage in a in a in a transparent way and and you know and, and therefore those nodes can then scale up and scale down on on demand based on the the actual application. Oh, the quick question on the opposite end of the schedule uh, spectrum. You know, Kubernetes isn't the answer for everything. So, is on that specifically laser focused on Kubernetes and the Kubernetes environment, or are there use cases that stretch beyond just using on that for Kubernetes? Well, no, we're we're very focused on Kubernetes, um, and the way we've built our software uh, to run in a container with with an exceptionally low overhead. Um, you know, we we're We've got customers running in tiny cloud instances with, you know, a couple of cores and four gigs of RAM, all the way to, you know, bare metal boxes with, you know, tens of cores and and hundreds of gigs of RAM, um, and 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 everywhere in between, you know. So so you're right. I don't think, I think Kubernetes is is a tool. I kind of think of nowadays of Kubernetes like the Linux kernel. And there are a number of dis distributions and services that are built on top of Kubernetes. And, and more and more, we'll, we'll begin to see this sort of, um, this sort of functionality emerge <clears throat> where, where Kubernetes will be, will be kind of like um, an infrastructure abstraction layer um, going all the way from, you know, edge to centralized data centers and cloud and, you know, and, and a bit of things in between. So what's, a t what's the size of a typical on that deployment and let's say capa usable capacity? I don't know if there is such a thing, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to put a specifics on that because it, it does vary quite, quite a lot. Um, typically, 
many clusters are a few hundred uh, in uh, a few hundred nodes in size, but we've we've got some clusters which which are a couple of thousand. Um, we are also, you know, anything from a few tens of terabytes to a few hundreds of terabytes uh, in, in 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 these sort of environments. Typically, the the sort of the workloads that that we're protecting or that we're that we're um, providing data services for is uh, things like you know databases and message queues and those you know things like Elasticsearch and and uh, and Kafka etc. So 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 these these stateful services that are transaction oriented or or that are actually running the system um, and then you know other services will might be providing object stores or, or, or things like that as, as, as a backup or an archive mechanism. So how is this priced? Is it priced on a per capacity basis per data storage node basis or um, it's it's a very simple uh, process it's 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 effectively priced per per node in a cluster yeah so so um, we have, you know, we have some differentiation for for volume and for bare metal versus, you know, VMs or cloud instances. But but it's it's really a simple um, it's a really a simple node pricing. And shortly with the SaaS platform, we'll we'll have um, on demand pricing as well. So so you know a more traditional cloud pricing model where it will be per hour. Yeah, it's, yeah. So this is block storage in a, in a Kubernetes environment. It doesn't include file storage. Is that true? No. So it's we we use there are two types of volumes. They're called in Kubernetes. It's called read write once and read write many. And and basically read write once are are effectively block volumes with with uh, a file system that's that's mounted within the namespace of that application. And read write many volumes are um, a shared file system. So, so those are file systems which are which are shared across, um, you know, multiple nodes and multiple applications. So, you know, think of it as the equivalent of NFS, for example. Mm -hmm. And and you're doing read write one. Is that mine? Correct. No, no, we're 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 doing both. Oh, so you offer both? Okay. Yeah. So so it's you know typically databases will be using. Um, read write once or those block volumes. Um, but there are many applications um, that have sort of path. Yeah, exactly. And 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 also, you know, there are lots of applications that kind of just um, even, you know, transformation, data transformation type systems where um, one system will write data to a volume which was read by another system and that kind of thing. So, so you could have those those containers running on different nodes sharing the same file system. I have to ask the, the one question: Is it support Tanzu, or how does that work in this environment? How does ONDAT work in a VMware Tanzu cluster Kubernetes grid kind of thing? It it just works natively. I mean, Tanzu is just VMware on, sorry, it's just Kubernetes on VMware, right? Um, so it's it's no different, you know, conceptually to say OpenShift or Rancher or or Antos or, or EKS or, you know, even some of the more complex environments which we're seeing nowadays where, you know, customers are deploying EKS anywhere on-prem or Google Antos in AWS and, you know, all the different combinations that we see nowadays. 
So I, I, you've tested it, or is, or it's your belief that it runs fine? I, I, I have to ask the question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we believe it runs fine. Okay. We've, we've done some, we've done some basic testing on the community edition so far. Yeah, I think it would be a, uh, I think it would be more of a detriment to VMware if it didn't run fine. Uh, this is kind of, I, I think this is one of those things that as traditional infrastructure folks, we have to start to wrap our heads around that uh, Kubernetes compliant distribution is a Kubernetes compliant distribution. It's not quite the same as Linux and Linux kernels where, you know, like uh, is, is Red Hat supported versus Ubuntu versus whatever. If it's, if it's a compliant distribution, it's a compliant distribution type of deal. It It is, that's true. But what we're seeing nowadays is um, a lot more opinion, opinionated distributions, right? So, the, you know, the distribution, I mentioned Kubernetes is, is almost like that kernel, but then there's all the stuff around it, right? So, so for example, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get Google Antos, which includes Kubernetes, of course, but it also includes Knative for serverless, and it includes Istio for network service meshes, et cetera. Um, and, and, and different distributions will have different ways of doing that. And, and that, extends to you know security and, and and a variety of other things too so so not all distributions are are identical and the opinionation is actually good you know i, th I think i think customers want to have an opinionated distribution that actually does a lot of stuff out of the box and not have to build everything from scratch right so i guess that does ask open the other question which is you know as i look at you know the cloud native uh kind of correlation of, of services between service meshes and et cetera. Where do customers have to kind of be careful about opinionated platforms when it comes to storages? The, do you just, guys just plug into CNI and stay focused onto the CNI plugin and, and the operators that you provide? Or is there a uh, reliance on, let's say, a certain service mesh for uh, visibility? Well, so Kubernetes provides um, an abstraction layer called called CSI, so similar to to CNI for the network. CSI is the is the equivalent for storage, and and it allows Kubernetes to talk to the storage system. Um, but it, you know, CSI isn't doesn't guarantee that services are available. So 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 for example, you know, you can use CSI to consume EBS volumes in in Amazon, but that doesn't mean that a cluster that's um, that that stretches multiple availability zones will be able to access EBS volumes across availability zones because you know that's not an architectural possibility with 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 Amazon. Um, similarly, you know you might come across other restrictions in terms of you know failover times or um, en or encryption capabilities or, or or other services, right? And so, you know, CSI is is effectively just a standard way for Kubernetes to access the storage system. But all storage systems are effectively very different. Um, it, you know, in much the same way that you could say, you know, iSCSI is a standard way of accessing, you know, a, a volume from a from a SAN array. But you know, what the SAN array does with that volume is is very different. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been great. Keith, any last questions for Alex before we close? No, it's been a great conversation. All right. Alex, anything you'd like to say to our listening audience before we close? Um, 
just one thing we're we're growing incredibly rapidly and we're always actively recruiting talented kubernetes and golang engineers so um if anybody is interested please do come to our website and uh and let us know we'd love to hear from you well this has been great alex thanks for being on our show today thank you very much it's it's been great talking to you ray and keith that's it for now bye keith bye ray and bye alex bye-bye until next time Next time, we will talk to another system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out.